Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. We're going to be having a chat about Benedict Arnold, the famous traitor from the American Revolutionary War. And Arnold's name will very probably be quite well known to listeners, particularly from the US, uh, as his name is essentially more or less a synonym for traitor or turncoat in America. Uh, it's used to describe any kind of treacherous behaviour. But was Benedict Arnold really the traitor that he's known to be today? Did he really betray his ideals, his men, his revolution? And does he deserve the... Re- yes, he does. It, it, in short, yes, very much so. He was every bit the traitor that he's remembered as today. After fighting for the rebellious Continental Army under George Washington as they fought for independence from the British... Arnold ultimately did turn his coat, he sold out to his enemies and began to fight for the British instead. And the reasons that he did this, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of them. They're still, there's still lot, a lot of debate today as to exactly what was, uh, what was going through his head when he, when he uh, ended up uh, changing sides. He had his fair share of obstacles and setbacks throughout his military career. Despite being a favourite of George Washington's, he ended up so dissatisfied uh, with his progress in the Continental Army that he the, that he ultimately decided to switch sides. But there's a lot going on, as I say, and the the fuller reasons behind his defection. I mean, that's what we're going to explore. That's what we're going to talk about in this episode. It's exactly what we're going to get across. We'll also talk about uh, Arnold's personality, who he was, how he behaved, how he impacted people, and of course, how he's remembered even even today in the 21st century. So before we begin, thanks go to alert listener Bob Howe for getting in touch with this topic suggestion. Thanks very much, Bob. Very, very interesting one here. But let's get to it. Let's get stuck in with the story of Benedict Arnold. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1741, and specifically to the 14th of January, this was the day on which Benedict Arnold was born. Now, he was born in Norwich, um, not the Norwich in Britain, uh, the the one instead in the British colony at the point at the time that he was born, the British colony of Connecticut, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic in, in what would obviously later on uh, become today's United States of America. Um, and at this point, uh, when Arnold was born, the American Revolutionary War is over three decades away. We're a long, long way away from this conflict. George Washington is just eight years old, uh, and the 13 colonies, as they were known then, are all well and truly under the rule of the British crown. Um, Benedict Arnold himself, by the way, he wasn't the first. Benedict Arnold, actually a long way away from being the first. Uh, His father was also named Benedict Arnold, and he was the grandson of, can you guess, Benedict Arnold, the original. He was actually one of the first governors of Rhode Island way back when. So, our Arnold is actually Benedict Arnold IV. Anyway, um, our Arnold's dad was a, a wealthy merchant in Connecticut. He married a woman named Hannah Waterman King. He had six kids with her, uh, but sadly only two of them survived to adulthood. Um, and I'll tell you this, the death of four of his kids took a huge toll on Arnold III. Uh, he took to the bottle, I'm, so, I'm sorry to say, and he squandered his wealth and fortune and also neglected young Arnold. He, he failed to prepare him to inherit the family business, which was sort of circling the drain anyway. Uh, but luckily for uh, young Arnold, his mum stepped up, got, an, got him an apprenticeship with her cousins. They ran a general merchandise shop. And so he worked uh, quite successfully with his cousins for, for a number of years, seven years. Uh, although at a couple of points he did 
try to run off and join the army to fight in the French and Indian War at the age of 14. Uh, And then again later, uh, two years later at the age of 16, when he was 14, his mum stopped him. Uh, How embarrassing for him. Imagine being, you know, pulled home from the recruiting office by your ear, by your mum. Um, but then two years later, as I say, when he's 16, this time he actually did manage to enroll in the in the Connecticut militia, although he didn't get very far. He served for about two weeks before we're, well, we're actually not sure. Um, he may have deserted, but people are very quick to demonize this bloke. They're very quick to paint this bloke as a spineless weasel, a complete failure of a man, all the, all the rest of it. And there's not a wealth of reliable evidence to suggest that he did desert at the age of 16. It may have simply just been that the company that he joined never really got properly involved in the war. We don't know. But one of the things about Benedict Arnold today and his reputation, which to a certain extent is deserved as, you know, he was certainly a traitor. No one's, no one's, no one's debating that. But he's been so maligned over the centuries that it is sometimes difficult to pick apart the truth from the lies in terms of people attempting to really paint him as someone who was always like that. So as we get through this episode and as I sort of try to portray the established facts of the story about Benedict Arnold, just remember that we are talking about a bloke who has spent most of you know his time in history as one of the most hated men in, in the history of the United States. And uh, as a result, not everything that has been written about him has necessarily been accurate. Anyway, whatever the reason, didn't make it to war as a 16-year-old. Uh, the first stage, of his, uh, first stage of his military career was uh, was as brief as it was uneventful, and uh, he went back to the world of commerce, commerce before very long. But sadly, very tragically, in, in 1759, uh, his mum died. And then, uh, I mean, you know, things go from bad to worse because two years later, his dad died as well. I mean, by the time his mum died, Arnold was... At this point, in charge of his whole family, he's providing for both his dad, who was, you know, an absolute drunken wastrel at this point, and uh, and his sister, the the other child who survived uh, to, to adulthood. But then, after his dad died, I mean, Arnold's only twenty years old. Very sad to have, for him to have lost both of his parents at such a young age. Um, and and from this young age, he was, you know, he's kind of left to fend for himself. But he did make the best of things. I mean, full credit to him. In uh, in 1762, he borrowed money from the cousins with whom he'd worked for years. Uh, and he used the money to set up his own business, a pharmacy and a bookshop in the town of New Haven, and uh, again, in, in, in the colony of Connecticut. And this business was very successful. Arnold was not only able to pay back the loan that he took from his cousins originally to set up the business, but also made enough money to repurchase the house he'd grown up in. His dad had sold this house when he drank himself into debt, and Arnold was able to buy it, fix it back up, and sell it at a, at a reasonable profit some years later. Then in 1764, he entered into a partnership with another merchant, a bloke whose name was Adam Babcock. Both of them were were young and hungry. And uh, in this partnership, the two of them, they bought three ships and they set up some trade routes to the West Indies with these ships. And uh, in doing this, he, again, the, the coin was just rolling in. He put his sister in charge, uh, charge of his shop and he sailed about himself on these trade voyages. And, and, and as I say, was, was making some serious bank here. So in his early 20s, Arnold was a successful trader. He was a wealthy merchant. He was young, dumb, and full of full, full of uh, energy. And so it won't it won't surprise you to learn what happened when the British began to slap new taxes on colonial trade in order to raise revenue. This was essentially the prelude to the American Revolutionary War. The Sugar Act of 1764, the Stamp Act of 1765. Anyone who knows their American revolutionary history will, of course, know that these deeply unpopular taxes 
drove many citizens of the colonies towards revolution. And one such citizen was, of course, Benedict Arnold. He joined a group of political dissidents who were devoted to resisting what they saw as the the political and economic oppression that the British Crown was opposing on the 13 colonies. And this secretive group was, as you may have guessed, the Sons of Liberty, whose motto became a rallying cry of the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. And famous members of the the Sons of Liberty included uh, John Hancock, Paul Revere, Samuel Adams, and and my personal favourite, signer of the United States Declaration of Independence, William Williams. Why would you call your son William when your last name is also Williams? Anyway, Arnold wasn't the most active or dedicated member of the Sons of Liberty. He didn't really get stuck into public protests or anything like that, but he did continue to run his business in open defiance of the new British taxes, and his, his opposition to uh, these new revenue-raising measures was was very obvious. It was very well known that Arnold was against this. I mean, as of course, it, he, he would be as a young and successful merchant who all of a sudden was was facing all these taxes that he hadn't had to pay beforehand. And the fact that he continued his business in defiance of these taxes, it made him, to, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, it made him a smuggler. And uh, despite many people in the colony sharing his views, his financial success began to come undone as he operated you know, outside of the bounds of the law. Uh, he fell into quite a bit of debt. He had to contend with people reporting his illegal activities as a smuggler. And at one point, he was even fined for the assault of a witness who was going to dob him in. But nonetheless, he stuck to his guns in resisting what was seen as the British oppression of their colonists in North America throughout the 1760s, as, of course, we hurry towards the revolution itself. Before that, however, in 1767, he married a woman named Margaret Mansfield, and in 1768, she gave birth to a son. And you will never guess what this son was named. Did you guess Benedict Arnold? Because congratulations, yes, indeed, we now have Benedict Arnold the fifth. Uh, they had two more sons together, incidentally, but instead they 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 mixed things up a little bit with these ones. They called them Richard and Henry instead of, I don't know, another Benedict. That would have been confusing at, at, at dinner time. Anyway, we can skip ahead a little bit here. Uh, we can move into the 1770s uh, to the direct lead up to the American Revolutionary War and, of course, the beginning of the actual conflict itself. The war began in 1775, the year before the Declaration of Independence was signed. Uh, And it began as a result of ever-increasing tension between local colonists in North America, in the 13 colonies, and their British overlords. Um, Issues such as higher taxation, uh, these economic affairs, there were military scandals like, the, of course, the Boston Massacre in 1770, uh, local protests like the Boston Tea Party in 1773, um, issues like the delegation of political authority to colonial governments, lots of other factors, all of these combined to create a strong feeling of ill will between colonists and those back in Britain. Now, look, the, the, the history of the American Revolution, it is long, it is complicated. We don't really have time to get into all of it here. So we will skip to 1775. We'll talk about when it all kicked off good and proper with the battles of Lexington and Concord, which, again, I'm sure American listeners will be very, very familiar with. If you know there is one thing America loves, it is, it, it is its own history. Not necessarily a particularly accurate history, as these battles sort of uh, tell us here. The, the, the way that these battles are portrayed is not necessarily always the most uh, the most accurate account of what actually happened. Just outside Boston in Massachusetts, uh, the British moved to capture the ringleaders of these mutinous colonists, or, or patriots, as they've become known. That's a term that I'm going to be avoiding, uh, talking about uh, the people who were fighting for American independence. Instead, I'll stick with rebels, which doesn't have the same sort of 
political connotations uh, these days. Anyway, these rebels, um, they were holed up outside of, uh, of Boston, as I say, in Lexington. They had uh, a cache of military resources, hardware, ordnance, all that sort of thing. And the British wanted to uh, head out, capture not just uh, this military hardware, but also, again, these ringleaders. Now, this resulted, this the, 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 the British sending out their regulars to Lexington, it resulted in, I mean, we call it a battle. It really was just a very small skirmish. Uh, only a couple of hundred people involved. There was a live studio a studio audience watching it. There was a crowd that had assembled to watch this, uh, this so-called battle. Um, and uh, it, it resulted, this, this conflict here, it resulted in the, uh, the first shot of the revolution being fired, the so-called shot heard around the world. And um, this phrase, for me at least, it really does encapsulate the, the whole idea of American exceptionalism because Lexington and, and the battle that took place there, it was really, in the grand scheme of things, an incredibly minor encounter in what was, you know, relatively speaking, in the in the broad stroke of world history, a small colonial rebellion. But Americans do love to aggrandize their own history, and despite much of the rest of the world not really paying all that much heed to the American Revolution, and definitely not to Lexington, they still call it the shot heard round the world. Just just like how the World Series involves twenty nine teams from the United States and. One team from Canada. Yes, the World Series. Yes. Anyway, the American Revolution, uh, the Revolutionary War, it kicked off with this shot heard round at, well, at least some parts of Lexington. Um, and it wasn't long before Benedict Arnold signed up to join the Connecticut militia, just as he'd done as a teenager, although this time things were a little different. He didn't have his mum to drag him home by his ear from the recruiting station. He was in his 30s. He was a well-known and prosperous merchant, although not quite as prosperous as he once was. He was still weighed down by significant debt. But he began as a captain, all the same. He was commissioned as an officer. He led his company in the almost year-long siege of Boston, uh, in which the rebellious Continental Army, with George Washington as its uh, commander-in-chief, eventually won, of course. Their ultimate victory in Boston came despite the Continental Army losing the very famous Battle of Bunker Hill, which, as you may know, took place on, well, no, actually not Bunker Hill. It took place on the hill next to it, Breed's Hill, not Bunker Hill, but the next hill over, so sure. Um, But Arnold's most notable involvement uh, in the Siege of Boston wasn't actually in Boston at all. It was, uh, it, it, it took place in what is today upstate New York, of all places. Uh, ultimately, uh, Arnold was promoted to colonel and he was sent off to assist with an attack on the lightly defended Fort Ticonderoga, uh, which was filled with British armaments and artillery that the Continental Army had its eye on uh, and you know was hoping to put to use in driving the British from Boston once and for all. Now Arnold was a very important part of this this expedition, which ultimately captured not just the not just the fort, not just Fort Ticonderoga, but also a bunch of military equipment, a bunch of supplies, and over a hundred and eighty cannons which were then transported to Boston and used to win the siege there. So his career as a Continental Army officer was off to a very good start. Uh, although, sadly, while off fighting in Ticonderoga, he had some tragic news from back home. His wife, Margaret, had died while he was away, which is very sad. But nonetheless, he pressed on with his efforts within the Continental Army. He strongly advocated uh, for an invasion of British-held Canada, specifically Quebec, uh, and the reason for this, Arnold was uh, was one of quite a few people who supported the invasion of Quebec, believing 
that if they seized the province, took control of it, they could convince the French-speaking Quebecois, who also, of course, weren't the biggest fans of the British crown, to join the rebels in fighting their revolution. However, even when this invasion was ultimately greenlit and when it went ahead, Arnold was passed over for command of the invasion. And this pissed him off a fair bit as he thought that he was the man for the job. But instead, a bloke whose name was uh, Richard Montgomery was sent off instead to lead the expedition. But Arnold, he wasn't going to take this lying down. And he was actually so bloody determined to be involved in the invasion that he rode, he got on his horse and he rode from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts to meet with Washington face-to-face and convince him to send a second invasion force that he, Arnold, would be in charge of. And believe it or not, Washington agreed. Washington was, for most of Arnold's career as a Continental Army officer, Washington was a big fan of Arnold, and he listened to what he said, and he said, yep, mate, no worries at all. I'll set you up with over a 1,000 men. You can take them through the wilderness of Maine, meet up with Montgomery and join, and join him in siege in Quebec City. But unfortunately, Arnold's journey was not a pleasant one. He led his, th- he led his troops through Maine, through the wilderness, as I say, um, and of the 1,100 men that he set off with, 200 died on the way, and another 300 gave up and headed back as deserters. And those that made it, the, the 600 or so that actually made it all the way, uh, they joined up with Montgomery's army in, in Quebec, and they, they took part in the Battle of Quebec on New Year's Eve in 1775, which resulted in a disastrous defeat for the rebels. Montgomery himself was killed. Arnold broke his left leg very badly. Um, But despite his failure to to take Quebec City, despite the fact that he lost this battle, Arnold was nonetheless promoted to Brigadier General. He was transferred to Montreal, and he was made a military governor of the city there until the Continental Army was forced to ultimately withdraw from the city. But even on his way out, even on his way back south, he was uh, he, he put himself to, to to good use. He helped to delay the British advance uh, as they tried to make their way back across uh, Lake Champlain towards Fort Ticonderoga. He organised a fleet to defend the lake. And look, this fleet was eventually defeated by the British, but Arnold's efforts were instrumental in the rebels holding on to the fort for much longer than they would have otherwise just because they were able to slow down the British advance. They held on to it until 1777. So overall, in the opening stages of the American Revolutionary War, you can't speak too badly of Arnold and his efforts on the battlefield in the opening stages here. He won some, he lost some, he helped in various expeditions and campaigns and operations. But what's really interesting about Arnold, even at this early stage in the war, is that he was an extremely polarizing figure. People back then either loved him or hated him. Arnold had a knack for making friends, that was equally matched by his knack for making enemies. He won over very important commanders, like, as I say, George Washington, Horatio Gates as well. But at the same time, he pissed off a lot of people. He had feuds with all sorts of other officers. He even got one bloke, Moses Moses Hazen. He got him court-martialed, seemingly out of spite. And many of these officers that he got on the wrong side of, uh, they were very well connected, politically speaking. And this did not have much of a positive impact on Arnold's continued career in the Continental Army. Let me tell you, in fact, the next year in 1777, it all boiled over when he was passed over for promotion uh, to Major General due to the political connections of the people that he was now on the wrong side of. They whispered a word or two in the right ear and all of a sudden the brakes are put on uh, onto Arnold's continued advancement. And this was in spite of Arnold's uh, continued achievements in, in the war up until this point earlier in that year. Washington, who, again, thought very highly of Arnold, 
Um, he had put him in charge of defending Rhode Island after the British captured the town of Newport. But uh, in February, despite Washington's backing, the Continental Congress ignored Arnold when it came to promotion and instead promoted other, perhaps less suitable, but certainly better connected officers. So Arnold, I mean, at this point, he's pissed off. He's as cross as a frog in a sock and uh, he actually resigns in, in the wake of this snub. Well, I mean, he attempts to resign, I should say, because he tendered his resignation to Washington, who rejected it. He refused to accept Arnold's resignation. He said, no, mate, get back to work. Um, and he, Washington, wrote himself to the Congress saying that if they kept promoting officers for political reasons, they would lose good officers like Arnold. So Washington actually went into bat for Arnold. But Arnold decided that he wasn't going to take this lying down. As I say, he decided to travel back to Pennsylvania. He wanted to discuss his rank and promotion with the Congress personally. And on the way back to Pennsylvania, he aided in the Battle of Ridgefield, where once again he was injured in his left leg again. But after getting back to Philadelphia, meeting with the Congress after they heard about what happened in Ridgefield, as well as receiving this warning from Washington, they ultimately did decide to promote him. Um, again, there was another factor. There was Washington's urging. There was Ridgefield. But there was also the death of, of another general that kind of opened up a position. And this uh, combined with the fact that they didn't give him seniority over the people who had already been promoted before him wasn't enough for Arnold. Once again, he tried to resign. And once again, Washington refused to accept his resignation, ordered him back into the fight under his new rank. So Arnold returned to upstate New York. He helped to lift the siege of Fort Stanwix. He, bought, he fought in both battles of Saratoga. Although, uh, despite his successes on the battlefield uh, in Saratoga, these battles cost him very dearly. Because first of all, he injured his left leg again, and this time so badly that it looked like it was going to it looked like it was have, it was going to have to be amputated. Um, it wasn't ultimately. We'll come to that in just a second. Uh, but I mean, look at this stage, you're just thinking this poor bloke with his leg, he just can't catch a break. Well, actually, no, it, he he caught lots of breaks. That was the that was the whole problem. He caught lots of breaks, and most of them were in his left leg. Uh, but secondly, and uh, and perhaps more importantly here, he fell out with Horatio Gates. I mentioned that um, he managed to cultivate friendships with many high up commanding officers in the Continental Army, and and Horatio Gates was was one of them. But these two men ended up at each other's throats. It got so bad that they were actually, they actually at one point had a full-on screaming match. They were bellowing at each other as they were arguing at, the, uh, at some point in, in Saratoga. And so in the Second Battle of Saratoga, Arnold directly disobeyed Gates's orders during this fight. And in doing so, of course, he lost a key ally. And on top of this, his badly injured leg prevented him from continuing to fight. He had to withdraw and, and rest to let it recover. As I say, it didn't get amputated. But it was so badly damaged and also ended up being so badly set by the physicians that treated him that it ended up being five centimetres shorter than his right leg by the time that he could walk on it again. So he really wasn't in a good way after that. Nonetheless, he did make as full a recovery as he possibly could. And in 1778, he travelled to the famous Valley Forge to join the rest of the Continental Army. And he joined them in swearing the very first oath of allegiance to the United States. But as I'm sure by now you know... This was not an oath that he kept for all that long. A month after Arnold rejoined the army in Valley Forge, Washington made him the military governor of Philadelphia. Uh, Washington still thought Arnold was great, still wanted to reward him for his service, and this post was supposed to be a, uh, a sort of cushy job that was given to him in light of the, of the, the sacrifices that he'd made, the battles he'd fought and the work that he'd put in. 
And Arnold did not waste time in making the most of this appointment. He did everything he could to profit from his new position. He made money on things like supplies, entering and leaving the city, you know, skimming a little bit off the top. And on top of this, his natural gift for rubbing people the wrong way began to quite heavily outweigh any ability that he had to make friends. And he ended up offside with a lot of people in Philadelphia. He also remarried, this time to an 18-year-old whose name was Peggy Shippen. And with her, he lived very lavishly. He spent money freely despite his debts. And all of this put so many noses out of joint that people eventually brought public charges of corruption against Arnold. And he faced a court-martial in mid-1779, although he ultimately didn't face much in the way of consequences. But suffice to say, he really, really had put a lot of people offside. Um, and, and, and it's at this point in 1779 that we start to move to the thing that has made Benedict Arnold famous to history, his betrayal of the Continental Army and the rebels and the revolutionary ideas that he once fought for. His new wife, Peggy, was thought to be a loyalist sympathiser and uh, may have been the one to have put him in contact with people in Philadelphia that were still loyal to Britain. Arnold was still very unhappy with how he had been treated uh, by the Continental Congress during his time as an officer in the Continental Army, you know, passed over for promotion, his, uh, his ambition thwarted by politicking, his injuries, I mean, the list goes on. But when we connect that to his decision to defect and, and betray the, the rebels, I mean, it doesn't necessarily paint the clearest picture. We honestly don't have the clearest idea of why Arnold did what he did next. Uh, there's a writer and historian, his name was W.D. Wetherill, and, and he puts this question to us. He asks, <clears throat> did he become a traitor because of all the injustice he suffered, real and imagined, at the hands of the Continental Congress and his jealous fellow generals? Because of the constant agony of two battlefield wounds in an already gout-ridden leg, from psychological wounds received in his Connecticut childhood when his alcoholic father squandered the family's fortunes? Or was it a kind of extreme midlife crisis, swerving from radical political beliefs to reactionary ones, a change accelerated by his marriage to the very young, very pretty, and very Tory Peggy Shippen? Whatever the reason, in mid-1779, Arnold began to communicate in secret with the British, offering them his services as a spy and double agent within the Continental Army. Through a loyalist Philadelphia merchant, Arnold was put in touch with the British Major John Andre, who reported to the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army in the Americas, General Sir Henry Clinton. Clinton and the British were more than happy to accept Arnold's offer of information, and so Arnold began to furnish them with military intelligence, troop numbers and army movements and details about hardware and supplies, all that sort of thing. Now, for this, he demanded that the British pay him £10,000, but in, while negotiations continued, he continued to feed information to the British all the way into 1780. And Clinton instructed Arnold to seek out a position within the Continental Army that would aid the British push for the Hudson River Valley. In April, one such opportunity arose for Arnold, and he very quickly did what he could to secure it. Um, Arnold, who by this stage had resigned as military governor of Philadelphia because of all the issues that he'd had there, he was considered as a potential commander of West Point 
you, you may have heard of West Point. Today it is the location of the US Military Academy. But back then it was a fort on the Hudson River and it was a fort that the, that the British were very, very interested in taking off the Continental Army, off, off uh, the, 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 the rebels. And Arnold used a trip back to his Connecticut home as a cover story to inspect West Point. He visited on his way back, and as he did so, he took detailed notes on the fortress and then sent those notes on to the British to give them a little taste of what would come if he were actually put in charge of the fort itself. He promised them that if he was appointed as as West Point's commander, he would draw up plans that would allow for its immediate and bloodless capture. And then... Just in case there was any doubt in your mind as to how serious this bloke was about selling out the rebels, when he got back to Connecticut, he sold his house and began to transfer his assets to London. And he also sent a new price to the British, now demanding £20,000 in order to deliver uh, deliver them West Point. Uh, and this, this was an amount that was ultimately agreed upon after much back and forth and negotiation between Clinton and Arnold. And on the 3rd of August in 1780, Arnold was indeed given command of West Point. And in the weeks afterwards, he did all he could to weaken it without raising any suspicion. He ignored routine and necessary maintenance. He sent off troops to reinforce other armies whenever it was requested of him to do so. And he tried to sneakily dispose of the fort's supplies so that it wouldn't be able to withstand a siege. Now, interestingly, people noticed that he was getting rid of all of these supplies, but assumed, based on the fact that he was corrupt as all hell back in Philadelphia, the fact that he had a bit of a reputation for it, they assumed that he was selling these supplies illegally for personal profit, not to actually weaken the fort itself. Anyway, as part of the overall plan to effectively hand West Point over to the British, Arnold also began to organise a clandestine meeting with Major Andre, his handler, for want of a better term, Uh, So as to finalise this plan, Um, and after a series of secret coded messages, Arnold and Andre, they met on the 21st of September. But rather than facilitating the surrender and, and handover of West Point, this meeting actually prevented it from happening. And here's why. Andre was delivered to this meeting point on a British ship. And this ship was supposed to carry Andre away from the meeting back to New York when it was finished. New York was still held by the uh, by the British at this stage. But while the ship was sitting there and waiting, it was fired upon by rebels that happened to see it. Now, the damage done to the ship was largely superficial. It didn't really have any major effect on the ship itself. It certainly wasn't at risk of sinking. But what it did do, if you'll believe it, is give the captain of the ship a very bad splinter in his nose. And so he decided that he wanted to get this splinter seen to sooner rather than later, and therefore left Andre to get back to the British-held New York City by himself. Sailed away without Andre, just like that. So realising this, realising that Andre was now have to go, was going to have to take an overland path through rebel-held uh, territory to get back to New York, Arnold wrote Andre a letter of safe conduct to get him through rebel lines and uh, also, of course, gave him these uh, detailed plans that he'd drawn up about West Point and, and, and its handover. Now, one of these documents... Very useful in dealing with the rebels that held the territory between where they were and uh, and New York. Obviously, Andre was able to use the letter of safe conduct to try to get through the enemy lines. Having detailed plans of an enemy fort, well, perhaps, 
Perhaps not so much. And when Andre was taken prisoner as he attempted to get back to New York City, uh, he was very, very thoroughly investigated as a potential spy. The Culpa Ring, a, a spy network established by Washington to support the Continental Army, they investigated Andre to within an inch of his life after he was captured. And ultimately, Washington was informed that this bloke was a potential British spy. He had plans of West Point in his pocket, along with a very strong connection to Benedict Arnold, its commander. So all of a sudden, the the Continental Army is on is on alert because why is this bloke wandering through enemy enemy territory with detailed uh, plans of 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 a, of a rebel held fortress and a letter of safe conduct? So. This was ringing alarm bells, and uh, luckily for Arnold, he was actually informed of Andre's arrest uh, by an unsuspecting colonel who wasn't familiar with the fact that Arnold was obviously behind this whole thing. And, uh, I mean, if you believe it, the story actually gets even more ridiculous here because Arnold had plans to have breakfast with George Washington himself the next morning. The very next morning, he had an appointment with the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, and he was just about to be unmasked as a traitor. So needless to say, this was not an engagement that Arnold kept. He knew that he was, again, certain to be unmasked to Washington as a, as a turncoat. And so instead, he fled down the Hudson River. He fled to the very same British ship with the splinter-nosed captain that had been supposed to take Andre home after his meeting. And instead, this ship took Arnold back to New York City while Andre remained in rebel custody. And let me tell you this, Arnold definitely got the better deal. Revealed as a traitor and a, and a turncoat, he made it to the relative safety of British controlled areas, while Andre, I'm sorry to say, was tried and hanged as a spy. But Arnold never delivered West Point to the British. Uh, obviously, the plan was forestalled before it could be put in motion. West Point was uh, was reinforced, and uh, the Continental Army took it took its defence much more seriously than uh, than Arnold had, obviously. But the British still recognised Arnold's value as a defecting high level officer, and so made him a brigadier general in the British Army, and paid him over six thousand pounds out of the original agreed upon twenty thousand. So he 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 still got a fair bit of cheddar for his efforts. But of course, he also got a job. And this was how Arnold began to fight now for the British. As a brigadier general, he led British troops in the capture of Richmond in Virginia. He raided and pillaged the Virginian countryside. And let me tell you this, the Continental Army determinedly pursued him wherever he poked his head up. And uh, he and his company were in constant danger of being run down by, by a, a force of rebels who were hell-bent on vengeance. Washington himself gave the order to hang Arnold on the spot if he were captured, execute him summarily, not even give him the benefit of a trial or a court-martial. He was to be hanged immediately. So with something of a target on his back like this, Arnold eventually was pulled out of Virginia. He was never captured, um, but uh, he and the British raiders were, were driven out of Virginia ultimately. But he continued to advise and counsel Clinton and other British commanders on their war effort, although I have to say many of his ideas were ignored. And perhaps the British should have listened to him as well, because, for instance, Arnold advised the British Lord Cornwallis, who you may have heard of, he advised Cornwallis not to set his base up on the coast. He said, no, go further inland, you won't, you won't be so vulnerable there. But instead, Cornwallis didn't listen, uh, he ignored Arnold, and he established himself in a little coastal town called Yorktown in Virginia. 
And for those of you who don't know, the American Revolutionary War was lost by the British at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. If Cornwallis had established himself inland as Arnold had suggested, who knows what may have happened instead of the decisive siege of Yorktown. Anyway, as I say, for the most part, Arnold's suggestions were ignored by the British, their own peril, although they did allow him to raid his homeland of Connecticut, which, I mean, it's not a nice story to share. Arnold did this with reckless abandon. He burnt ports and towns to cinders. He killed hundreds, and in doing so, he lost many of his own men. And all this was done within spitting distance of the very place that Arnold had grown up as a boy. But after this, Arnold actually didn't see that much more action in the American Revolutionary War. And that wasn't just because the war was coming to an end. In 1781, uh, Arnold asked Clinton for permission to leave North America altogether and instead sail to Britain. And Clinton agreed to this. Arnold arrived in London in 1782 with his family. And once again, he offered his advice to the British authorities there as to how to wage their war against his former allies, against the rebels. But... As we now know, the war was effectively over. Even though hostilities technically continued until 1783, the British were never in it after the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. And this wasn't just because of the the military situation in North America, but also because by this stage the British had... Look, they'd more or less lost the political will to continue the fight. So Arnold's role in the closing stages of the war was, was greatly diminished... Um, because of these factors and and another one as well, which I need to talk to you about here. Arnold wasn't particularly well-respected or well-liked by the British back in London. Arnold was a turncoat. He was a dishonest and dishonourable traitor. And even though the British obviously benefited from him turning his coat, they certainly didn't celebrate him doing so. And in fact, he was seen as treacherous, as untrustworthy, and this reputation followed him everywhere. He applied for positions within the British Army, within the British East India Company, but everywhere he went, he was rejected and rebuffed. And look, you can't blame people for not trusting him. He sold out his loyalty to the rebels and the Continental Army in America, so why should he be trusted not to do the same thing again in the future if it suited him? Eventually, with his fortunes in such poor shape in Britain, he left for Canada. He moved to New Brunswick in 1785, but things didn't go much better for him there either. Old debts resurfaced. He was ruthless and unscrupulous in his business dealings while trying to establish new trade routes to the West Indies, just as he'd done in his youth. And once again, he made a lot of enemies with his business practices, as well as frivolous lawsuits that he brought against people. And by 1787, he was so thoroughly despised by the community of St. John in, in New Brunswick that they assembled in front of his house to burn him in effigy. And so he ultimately decided to return to London. But interestingly, his fortunes actually did end up turning around a little bit after yet another transatlantic voyage. Uh, He established, he set up a privateer, uh, an armed trade vessel that was designed to go across to the West Indies and and bring trade goods back uh, back to Europe. He himself went on this privateer as it journeyed across the sea to the West Indies. And while over in the West Indies, he was captured by the French as a British spy. I mean, who can who can blame them, given, uh, given his history? But he managed to not only escape from French custody, but also put his military experience to good use. He organised militias in the West Indies to fight the French forces there, and this earned him a sizable reward from the British when he finally returned to London. He was given a land grant in Upper Canada, uh, in modern-day Ontario, uh, and he moved there with his family, 
and stayed there for the rest of his life because it was there that Benedict Arnold finally died in 1801 with his health entering into a sharp decline as time went on. His old injured leg only got worse and worse as he got older while his right leg ended up so full of gout that he could hardly walk, let alone sail. And his condition got worse and worse as time went on until eventually he died on the 14th of June at the age of 60. And since then, the memory of Benedict Arnold has suffered nothing but despisement and scorn as the greatest turncoat in American history. And as I said before, even today, his name is still synonymous with traitor in the United States. Now, that's not to say he doesn't deserve it, of course. He was a traitor and a bad one. It is difficult to describe him as anything else. But it's here that you might be thinking, well, I mean, look, this hasn't been a particularly scandalous or perhaps even hugely interesting story. He was just a bloke who got fed up and decided to sell out his loyalties just like that. And if this episode of the podcast has sounded a little dispassionate, a little matter of fact, maybe even a little dull, that's not an accident. Because all that history has done to Benedict Arnold is revile him, paint him as a man of complete and total moral failure, with no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And look, I'm not trying to defend the bloke and the decisions he made. He was a traitor, as I've said, with a disgracefully flexible moral compass. But I do think that the extent to which his memory is vilified doesn't match the level of his treachery. In his hometown of Norwich, Connecticut, all of the Arnold family gravestones, with the exception of his mother's, have been defaced or even destroyed. And Since his death, moralising children's stories have been completely invented about him, utter fiction, further demonising him and his name well beyond the bounds of historical reality. And look, again, this episode was not written in his defence. I'm not trying to rehabilitate his image, but I do think that it's important to maintain a level of reason and clarity when viewing historical figures like Arnold, rather than giving in to scandal and exaggeration and hyperbole. And besides, it's not as if Arnold didn't suffer himself for his disgrace and dishonour. To close out the episode, I want to leave you with an account from the famous French diplomat, the Prince of Talleyrand, who met Arnold personally in 1794 and wrote about the encounter. The innkeeper at whose place I had my meals informed me that one of his lodgers was an American general. Thereupon, I expressed the desire of seeing that gentleman, and shortly after, I was introduced to him. After the usual exchange of greetings, I ventured to request from him some letters of introduction to his friends in America. No, he replied. And after a few moments of silence, noticing my surprise, he added, I am perhaps the only American who cannot give you letters for his own country. All the relations I had there are now broken. I must never return to the States. He dared not tell me his name. It was General Arnold. I must confess that I felt much pity for him, for which political Puritans will perhaps blame me, but with which I do not reproach myself, for I witnessed his agony. But that's it. 
That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Benedict Arnold. And even if this story has done nothing to change your opinion of the bloke, and certainly that wasn't my that was my goal when I wrote this episode. At least now you have a clearer and fuller picture of what this bloke was all about and perhaps understand some of the reasons that he made the reprehensible decisions that he did. But as ever, closing out the show with all the boring housekeeping stuff, thank you to those of you who stick around for this. Um, and, and if you don't, I suggest now you do because I've got a couple of things I want to mention. We do have new merch coming to the Half Hour History Merch Shop within the next little while. Um, uh, if you haven't seen, there's been some, there was a merch update a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. If you want to go and get across that, but they will, they, I'm very, very excited about this. We've got new merch in the pipeline. Maybe by the end of the year, if not early 2023, there'll be brand new merch. If you want to go and get across the merch that's already there, though, you can do so. Halfhousehistory.net. You'll find the link to go through to the T Public website. Uh, very important, you click on the link from the uh, Halfhouse History website itself because that puts in the proper referral code for the back end. I don't know, man. It's all technical mumbo jumbo to me but that's what i've been told to tell you i've also been told to tell you go and leave reviews for the show thank you so much to all the people who are doing so spotify we are getting up there with a ton of five-star reviews i really appreciate those itunes i mean the itunes listeners falling behind lift your game i know you got to write some stuff when you're doing a uh do a, doing a review but uh, getting a lot more reviews on spotify than we are on itunes but look algorithmic al- algorithmically speaking couldn't be happier thank you so much for that and it's great to hear new listeners coming in very interested to hear how people come across the show. I know people come in from just searches and whatever else. So welcome, one and all. If you're a new listener, an old listener, a middle listener, it's it's great to have all of you here. If you want to support the show uh, more directly, head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash half history, of course, the best place to do that. And you can gain access to all sorts of exclusive perks. There's behind-the-scenes stuff, uncut episodes, show notes. There's also merch as well. It's the only way to get your hands on certain uh, certain half Us history merch items. So head over there. But look, the best way to support the show is, of course, absolutely free all you need to do tell your friends tell your enemies tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent and i'll see you next week for more half ass history until then of course leaving you with a question posed on reddit this one comes to us from reddit historian wb Stillwell. was that the name of the author who did the wait no that he was wd someone wasn't he wd weatherall not wd weatherall this one's wd Stillwell, who asks if benedict arnold was such a traitor how come we still eat his eggs